Welcome to the Calvary Lake Ozark Message Podcast. Wherever you are tuning in from today, we hope that you're challenged and encouraged by today's message. If you'd like more information about Calvary Lake Ozark, visit calvarylakeozark.com. Well, good morning. How are you guys? We are in our study in Matthew, so if you have your Bibles, open up to Matthew chapter 26, working through that. Uh, Matthew wrote, uh, obviously, in a way... Um, he had a very specific reason in his writing. It wasn't just like, hey, I just feel like writing a book. Maybe I can become an Amazon bestseller. There was a little bit more purpose in it. And so there was times that he would, uh, it's almost uh, uh, very organized, where he would write about uh, a teaching of Jesus. And so he'd record that, and then he would show you kind of what's happening in the story. And then there was another teaching block. And so now we are coming to the end of his gospel that he's writing. And at this point, as he's showing the end of Jesus' life and his ministry, he's focused on four individuals in this part of the story. So last week, if you remember, we talked about Judas, uh, you know, that scallywag. That's a word my grandma uses right there. I think it's a curse word. I don't know yet, though, so we're still trying to figure that out. And then uh, this morning, we're going to talk about Caiaphas and Peter, and then next week, uh, continuing on uh, and looking at Pilate. So if you have your Bibles, uh, Matthew chapter 26, starting verse 57. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat down with the guards to see the end. Now you see where the sermon series came from. Verse 59, now the chief priest and the whole council, they were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none, though many wit false witnesses came forward. And at the last two came forward and said, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is it? that these men testify against you. But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. And Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robe and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard this blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they, this crowd said, he deserves death. And they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him saying, prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard and a servant girl came up to him and said, you also were with Jesus, the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him and said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, Peter, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. And after a while, while the bystanders came up and said to him, certainly you too are one of them for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, 
you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. And so here we are uh, starting the trials of Jesus. We'll, uh, next week when we talk about Pilate, we'll geek out a little bit. A lot of people like it when we do that. Uh, there was actually six trials that Jesus was uh, thrown before that uh, there's some really unique and interesting things about that, but more on that next week. But it starts here as he's arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, and then he's taken to Caiaphas. And so I wanted to focus and draw a little attention to this guy first, and then we'll talk about Peter. So Caiaphas was the high priest at the time, and he kind of was a puppet of a high priest. His father-in-law was more the guy that was in power, Annas. And kind of like the mafia. You know, there was nothing that Caiaphas would have done without running that decision or that authority past Annas. Um, And so the high priest normally would serve until their death. But when Rome came in and took over, they knew if we can control almost every aspect of a person's life, we can control them. And their faith was one of that. And so they kind of took into their control who's going to be high priest and who's not. And so if there was a guy that was high priest and they didn't like him, they just got rid of him and they'll put somebody else into place. And so Caiaphas was high priest for 19 years, which kind of tells us that if there was a high priest that Rome didn't get along with, they just get rid of him. So for the fact that he's there for 19 years, uh, he was a very shrewd collaborator with Rome. And so definitely uh, didn't uh, maybe hate Rome as much, but he appreciated that he got to keep his power and his authority. And so uh, there was actually even three high priests right before Caiaphas, and a lot of Annas, he put a lot of his sons and son-in-laws in place there. But right now, Caiaphas is the sitting high priest, but we know who's kind of in charge. And Caiaphas, he was a uh, Sadducee. Pause real quick. We left the back door open because our AC, half of our AC went out this morning. So we're all going to be sitting, uh, sweating like sinners in church this morning, just in case you were wondering that. And so if it gets warm in here, we know that. I have long sleeves on on. I really know that. So sorry, squirrel. All right. So Caiaphas was a high, was the high priest, and he was a Sadducee. And there was different little groups even within uh, the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees, and one of them was a San, uh, Sadducee. And what we know about that is he didn't hold to anything authoritative in the Old Testament outside of the first five books of the Old Testament, also known as the Pentateuch. So that's all he held to. Everything else, he didn't hold to be real scripture. He only held to the first five books. Um, Most likely more elite in a social status uh, within uh, the Jews. And then he also didn't believe anything supernatural. No miracles, no resurrection, nothing like that. So it's very a materialistic type of worldview. And what's fun about that is when you look at like John 12, when Jesus uh, called Lazarus out of the tomb, it says that the chief priests and the scribes wanted to put Lazarus to death because that didn't fit their theological framework. We don't believe in a resurrection. We don't believe in anything supernatural. So that guy who was dead for four days and now he's back alive, yeah, we need to kill him because that doesn't fit with our theological framework. Sometimes we kind of do the same thing in scripture. We'll read something that doesn't fit our theological framework of how maybe we were raised in whatever tradition we have. And so we just don't highlight those parts of the Bible, right? But that was Caiaphas. He was also in charge of the temple, uh, of all the treasury. So you know the story when Jesus comes in and he's flipping tables saying, hey, don't turn this into a house of robbers or a den of robbers, a house of trade. 
Uh, Caiaphas would have been financially, and if not as authority challenged, financially impacted by those actions of Jesus. So if anybody came in and was disrupting the ebb and flow of a whole lot of money, Caiaphas would have known about that. We know in other parts of the Gospels, it's Caiaphas that wants to kill Jesus. He wants to save Israel. That's how he, he puts it in words. We, want to, we need to save Israel. And the best thing that we can do to save Israel is to kill Jesus, the one who came to save Israel. But that is Caiaphas. And what's really fun about Caiaphas is, especially when we're talking to people that maybe don't really necessarily agree uh, with the Bible or they're asking for evidence, uh, that's, honestly, that was me for a while. I wanted Prove to me that the Bible is real. When I lived in my brokenness, I didn't want to take it just by faith. I, I wanted to see evidence for it. And is there any evidence? A uh, little side note, uh, even the New Testament, looking at even how Matthew wrote and what he wrote about, he wasn't writing thinking, oh, this is going to be the New Testament. They're going to bind it in nice little leathery books that people are going to write in and take to church every Sunday. He was merely just writing the life, the ministry, the death, the resurrection. He's just writing real historical people, real historical events. He has no concept that he's writing the Bible. He's just telling us about Jesus. And so if you have somebody that's kind of uh, critical of your faith and they're asking for evidence, I don't reference it as the New Testament to them. I don't reference it as the Bible, but I, I always ask them, hey, would you be interested in reading some uh, ancient eyewitness documents about the life of Jesus? When you say that, they're like, ooh, I'm, I'm very interested in that. Is there any of those? So it's like, well, actually, if you look at all the ancient manuscripts that we have ever dug up, not even just of the New Testament, let it be the Iliad and the Odyssey that the Greeks wrote or something by Josephus or Philo, if you take the top 10 documents that, we've, that we have, if you take number two to number 10, the number of manuscripts that we have don't even touch the first one which is the New Testament. And that's just in the Greek. If we add other languages in, in it, like Coptic or Latin or something like that, the number gets real crazy high and a lot of fun. And so there is actually very uh, ample evidence of manuscript evidence of the life and the ministry of Jesus. And there's actually 10 scholars, ancient scholars, that had no ax to grind towards Jesus. They weren't even believers that if you read their works, they would give you a timeline story of the life of Jesus and his miracles with it. They would tell you about his birth, his life, his death, even his resurrection. You could put together a basic story that we believe about Jesus and not even open up the New Testament. And so I'm real big into archaeology, the evidence defending our faith. And another one that we have is Caiaphas himself. Right? Because a lot of people ask, is there any archaeological evidence about the Bible? Actually, there's a ton. So to say that there's no archaeological evidence that defends or at least corroborates the Bible is actually a very ignorant thing to say, meaning you just don't even know what is actually out there. And so Caiaphas is one of those. In 1990, they were digging, and not even like an archaeological like cool dig. I think they were digging to build something, you know, like laying a foundation. <laughs> And they're digging in 1990, and they come across, and they break into a cave. And we have to understand, in this day, a cave was used as a tomb. We understand about a Jesus. They took Jesus down from the cross, and they laid him in the tomb. It was a cave. 
And what they would do is after all the ooey-gooey stuff of the body was decayed and you just had bones left over, people would go back into that tomb, they would gather up your bones, and they would put you in a stone box called an ossuary. So in 1990, we're digging, we find this cave full of ossuaries, and there's multiple of them there. And there's one that's very ornate, very nice, carved out, and there's an inscription on it, Caiaphas ben Josephus. What's crazy is we don't have something that testifies of Caiaphas. We have him himself. Because again, if he was high priest for 19 years, which would have been pretty rare He was greatly revered and respected amongst the Jewish people, even amongst the Romans a little bit, for them to keep him in power for that long. So his ossuary to be very ornately designed and carved would have been very fitting of somebody of that high respect. It dates to the time of Jesus. So it's always just kind of fun that, and he, Caiaphas, is actually one of the only people that we have from the time of Jesus. So it's not even just an archaeological thing. We have the very bones of the guy, which is always kind of fun to talk about because Caiaphas was high priest for 19 years, highly respected, and we have his bones. But Jesus, just a small-town rabbi, only having a ministry of three years, his grave, that's empty. That's a whole other story. Great story, but a whole other story. And so this is Caiaphas, They arrest Jesus, they bring Jesus to Caiaphas, and and they're having this, it's pretty much a mock trial, meaning they're not really looking at evidence and thinking, okay, show us the evidence, and we're going to let the evidence lead us to a verdict. Nope, we already have a verdict. We want to kill Jesus. He threatens everything about our way of life. He threatens economically, theologically, just everything. We want to kill him. We're going to lose power. We're going to lose authority. The only way we see out of this is we need to kill Jesus. But you just can't go around killing people, even though they kind of did. Now they have to try to justify their behavior. How do we work around this so it, it's, it, we justify ourselves, that it's not the blood on us, but that Jesus deserved death. And they have multiple false witnesses that are coming, and they can't get one accusation to stick. And Jesus, the whole time, just stands there silent. He doesn't say a word. And they're throwing all these accusations, they're saying all these horrible things about him, and he says nothing. Finally, a couple people come up and they said, hey, we do remember at one point this man said something about the temple, that he could destroy it and build it up in three days. Now, in that day and age, you can't just go around saying something bad about the temple. The temple was not just the center of Jewish faith. It was the center of their entire life. It was everything. It wasn't just like, oh, I work here, and then I go to church here. No, no, this was the center. They, they, this is where the glory of God dwelt among the people of Israel. And you can't just walk around saying, yeah, we're going to destroy that thing. Like, you can't say anything negative to it. And so there's this accusation that is thrown out to them. And he says, nothing. Jesus just remains silent. I think it's for a couple of reasons. Number one, if you go to Isaiah 53, verse 7, an Old Testament prophecy talking about the Messiah, and even it's predicting that he would be killed. It said, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened and not his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. So all these accusations, all these things that are being saying to him, and he just stands there. 
And even Peter, and we'll get to him in a minute, you know, was watching from a distance. He was hearing some of the things that were being said and some of the names that were being thrown at him. And it's like, why doesn't Jesus do something? Why doesn't, you know, like turn water into wine? Why doesn't he take some wine, splash it in there? Why does he do something? Make a sword appear, stab somebody, do something. Is he, why is he not, why is he just standing there? Because this was what was prophesied by the Old Testament, that the Messiah would stand there. And it so greatly impacted him that you can look later. Uh, Peter wrote a couple books. So go to 1 Peter chapter 2. That even what Peter is watching, what he's hearing, what he is seeing in this, it impacts him later. And he writes, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, for to this you have been called, talking to us as the church, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. So what's the example? So that we might follow in his footsteps. What's the example? Verse 22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So even while Jesus is taking all this reviling, all this name-calling, all these horrible things that are being said about him, he entrusts himself to God. This would have been very unique and different. If you would have saw anybody else on trial, they would have been fighting for their life. Every small little accusation that came at them, they would have been right back at, no, that wasn't me, I didn't do that. I hear those words a lot as a father. I have four kids and... And, you know, well, three girls will get into a big fight and you just hear hissing and scratching and it's just craziness. And I have to call Ashley in there. We need some estrogen. We need some backup. Like, it's only me and my son, everybody else. I mean, even the dog is a girl. It's insane. And I'm always asking, okay, what happened? Well, she did this. He did that. No, I didn't do that. And we just have this fight back and forth. Like, no wonder they wanted to crucify Jesus all this fighting and going on, like we're getting rid of one of you. We're keeping our favorites. No, teasing. But Jesus stands there quiet and he says nothing. And he couldn't deny that he made that statement. So one, he said nothing because he's fulfilling prophecy. Number two, he couldn't deny that he made it, but I don't think he said anything because he couldn't give them understanding to what he said. He couldn't explain the spiritual meaning behind, okay, what did you mean by destroying the temple in three days and you're gonna, or destroy the temple and you're gonna rebuild it in three days? He couldn't explain that meaning to them. Because again, these men were not on a path and a pursuit for truth. They were on a path of destruction. They woke up and chose violence that morning. They just wanted to kill Jesus. And so they're not asking, hey, what did you mean by that? Help us, give us understanding. We, we don't know what you meant by that. We'd really like to know. Even later, we know that the disciples, it's written in John, as he's writing later says, uh, it wasn't until later that we understood what he meant, that he wasn't talking about a temple of a building. He was talking about his body. And so the spiritual understanding of what he meant by destroy this temple, of understanding of why the Messiah, the Christ had to die, they're not gonna understand it nor were they even open to the idea of pursuing the truth of who Jesus is and what he was here to do. So he remains silent. And the other thing I, that you see, why I think he couldn't fully explain its spiritual meaning is because that's what they were currently doing, that the fulfillment of what Jesus said 
destroy this temple and I'll build it. They were currently destroying the temple that he spoke about. And so if, if he was going to give a full explanation of it, even if their minds were open to the idea and the truth of it, they would stop. But even on the cross, Jesus said, forgive them for they do not know what they do. If you look at that word forgive, because again, Jesus never asked the Father to forgive anybody on earth. He forgave sins. So why did Jesus say that from the cross? If you look at that word forgive, in the original language, it also means do not keep them from doing what they're doing. That Jesus did not want anything to happen that would obstruct or get in the way of God's will for his life, even if it meant death, death on a cross. And so looking at the example that is set before us, there's no fruit in defending our own reputation and our own character. I know the dirty, rotten sinner that I am. I know the brokenness that still tries to plague my life. And so when people want to attack and criticize me for my faith and they want to say all kinds of horrible things against me, my flesh wants to easily try to rebuttal and say, oh yeah, you know what you are? Let me tell you about your mama and all, you know. That's my flesh coming out. But if I really want to be like Jesus, if I want to be a Christian, even that term was a derogatory term used by Rome about the church. The church didn't call themselves Christians. They called themselves the way. The term Christian was a derogatory term. Oh, look at them little Christs over there trying to be like a little Jesus. And so when people want to name call and they want to criticize and they want to critique and they want to make fun of our faith, just stand there silently. There's no reason. I think even Proverbs says, you know, it's, it's foolish to argue back with a fool. There's, there's no fruit with that. So they're not, and they're not gonna understand just like here. They're, they're not gonna understand the spiritual meaning of, oh, you go to church, what's, you know, they, they're not gonna understand the hope that we have in fellowshipping together and worshiping Christ. They're not gonna understand the hope that we have in scripture and the grace and the mercy that we find in his presence. They're not gonna get that. So there's no reason that we need to argue back with somebody that's critical of our faith. That's not really witnessing, that's not evangelism. And we'll talk about when we do talk when should we speak? But when we're being attacked, just stand there. And it's hard. It's going to go against our flesh. It's going to go against what we want. But isn't that a fruit of the Spirit? Self-control. Isn't that one of the things that he calls us to do is not just to allow our flesh to lead and guide, but we have to control. Paul says, I beat my body into submission to follow Christ. There's going to be things in our life that we have to control. We can't just let our flesh go running ragged to do whatever it wants to do, but said, nope. Even in my self-control of my tongue, I'm going to be like Jesus, even when he suffered. And it's hard because we even have those conversations with the Lord. Lord, don't you know what they're saying about me? Don't you know what they want to do to me? And then I just hear that small voice of the Lord telling me, don't you know what they said about me? Don't you know what they did to me because of you? There was no deceit in my mouth, says the Lord. There was no sin that I committed. Everything that I endured is because of your sin. Not mine. And so I think there's times that we, as the church, we just need to stand silently. And it's difficult. Scripture says that vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And don't we just want to be about the Lord's business sometimes? Like, just pray, Lord, just give me this one, please. This guy cut me off. They're in line in front of me. There's only one McRib left, and he's going to get it. Just let me lash out on this one, please, Lord. 
But no. He said, I asked you to trust me. I asked you to control yourself. I asked you to follow the example that I have given you. So there's no fruit in defending our own reputation, our own character, because again, I don't need to defend it. I just have to look at the cross. My righteousness isn't mine, it's his. My reputation isn't mine, his. My character isn't mine, it's his. I'm doing everything I can to try to mar that. He's done everything to save, to defend. I don't need to defend myself. And then we see, when do you not, or when do you not speak? Now, when do you speak? So Jesus is sitting there, he's remaining silent. Then the high priest looks at him, he says, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And I think that's just hilarious. This is how just mind-bent they are on killing Jesus. Hey, tell us by the living God if you are the Christ. Meaning, tell us by the living God, I, I put you under oath, if you are the living God, Tell us if you're the Christ, meaning, are you who we're having you an oath under? Under the living God, are you him? You have said so. And an oath in this day, it it doesn't have the same weight that it did in Jesus's day, right? So like on trials, when people walk up and they put their hand on the Bible, which I don't think they do that anymore, swear to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. (laughs) Yeah, I've seen Judge Judy, okay? Yeah, right. Yeah, we just had another celebrity trial on TV, and I'm sure everybody was just so honest and forthcoming with every detail. No, if perjury was truly a crime, we'd all be in jail. But in this day, an oath, binding by somebody by an oath, and even seeing Peter, we'll talk about that oath later, this was a really big deal. So he puts him under the oath. Are you the living God? Are you the Christ? Are you him? Because the living God and the Christ must... The Messiah is God. We see that from the Old Testament scriptures. And so Jesus at this point doesn't remain silent. He does speak at this point. And he says, you have said so. And I tell you, and he continues on, which I love. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus always, there's a lot of critical scholars that say that Jesus never affirmed that he was God. All you have to do is read the Gospels, and there are multiple ways that Jesus affirmed that he is God. He flat out said it. John 10 tells us, uh, Jesus said, I and the Father are one, showing his divinity. Absolutely. Even some of the actions, who can forgive sins other than God alone? Well, only God can forgive sins. Your sins have been forgiven. Even in his actions with miracles that testify to who he was. Even his ability to allow people to worship him because you only worship God alone. And people worship Jesus and he never stopped that. An angel, every time somebody bowed at an angel, they would tell him, get up, quit that, don't do that. You don't worship angels, you worship God. But anytime somebody bowed to Jesus to worship God, that's what they were doing. And so here he tells them, absolutely, I am the Christ. So when critical scholars wanna say, hey, he didn't affirm that he was God, this was just something that Paul made up years later when he was writing the rest of the New Testament? No. Jesus absolutely affirmed that he was God. And he goes further and he uses Psalm 110 and Daniel 7, two messianic promises given in the Old Testament scriptures about who the Messiah and what he would be doing. Takes both of them, kind of pulls them together and says, you're gonna see the Son of Man 
seated at the right hand of power, coming on the clouds of heaven. And that word clouds is always about judgment. That's the picture of judgment. So you're going to see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of God, which is a place of honor, a place of equality, and he's coming in judgment. He came as the lamb to be grace and the mercy and to bring salvation. Oh, he's coming again. Not as a lamb. Not in grace and mercy, but in truth and in justice. And he's coming, bringing the wrath of God. But again, that's a whole nother story. So when do we not speak? When we're being criticized for our faith. Let God defend us. Let the righteousness of Christ defend us. We don't need to speak into that. But when do we speak? Fruitfulness of speech comes only when the Spirit of God, moving through us as the people of God, speak about the Son of God, Jesus. When we have opportunities, the Holy Spirit is moving and working in those around us, moving and working in us to share the good news and the hope that we have in Jesus. The problem is in the church today, broad brush, we're real quick to want to defend ourselves. And not even from the outside world. You know, you just let us, a few Christians, hang out for a while. Oh, yeah. We love to pick on each other and say all kinds of things to each other. There's some of the greatest battles you'll have is inside the room, not outside of the room. And that's what's hard because a lot of people don't want to walk back into a building. Oh, it's just full of hypocrites. Don't you know those people? (laughs) Yep, I'm one of them. And one more, not going to hurt. We meet on Sundays. We'd love to have you. It's like a... Hypocrisy Anonymous. But we're real quick to use our tongue. James would say when we attack each other with our tongues, our tongues are lit on fire from hell. Hell's not just a place and a location, but hell is something that we unleash on one another when we don't have control of our tongue, when we're not having fruitful speech. And so we're real quick to want to defend ourselves and say all kinds of things to people around us that are supposed to be our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we get real shy, real quiet when we're supposed to be speaking the name of Jesus. I'm more prone to want to defend myself and say horrible things, say things that does not show the self-control and the fruit of the Holy Spirit in my life. And I'm real slow at times to affirm the name of Jesus where I quench the Holy Spirit, how he's working in someone else or working in my life to share that hope that I have. I'm real quick to want to quench that. I ain't got time for that, Lord. I I got other things I got to worry about. You know what that person said about me? But again, if we are given an example in Christ, what did he show us? Don't worry when we're attacked. You don't need to defend yourself. And when you have opportunities, speak about the grace and the hope and the mercy and the truth of who Jesus is. Those are the next steps of obedience that we need to take. Because that's what discipleship is all about. Your next step of obedience. Kind of like when it snows here, uh, like every four days in the winter, because uh, we live in misery, I mean Missouri. <sighs> I keep telling my wife, if the Lord calls us to move again, I'm going south. I don't care what he says. Somewhere with sand and an ocean. But it'll snow the 800 feet overnight because it's Missouri. And we'll get out of the car. We're trying to walk to the store, walk into the house. And I'll have to trudge through the deep snow. And I make footprints. And I tell my kids, don't run in the crazy snow. We're going to be tracking it in everywhere. And your feet freeze off. And you got 
you know, don't do it. Frostbite, don't need all that. Just walk in my footsteps. And you know what those dirty, rotten little heathens do? Just create their own little path. Here I am, showing them the next step to take. Big foot, small foot, it'll fit. They, nope. And we're the exact same way. Because Jesus tells us the next step that we need to take. If our next step is not stepping into the same footprints that Jesus left for us, that's not our next step of obedience. And so he has left us an example of when to speak and when not to speak. Affirm the name of Jesus. Allow the Holy Spirit to lead, to guide you, to give you opportunity. Well, I don't know if I'm gonna say it all right. I don't know if I'm smart enough for all that. Allow the Holy Spirit to use and to guide you. You don't need degrees on a wall. You don't need some little evangelism training. You need the word, you need the spirit, and obedience to him. Now we get to a guy named Peter, following at a distance. And we look at that, and if you go back to, so we're still in 26, go back to verse 31 and 32. So when they were uh, walking out of the Passover meal and they're getting ready to go to the Garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus tells them, verse 31, you will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, and he's quoting Zechariah 13, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered, and after I am raised up, you will, I will go before you to Galilee. Right? So we have Peter following at a distance. And a lot of times you'll hear some sermons like, oh, that's Peter's mistake. Is he was trying to follow Jesus at a distance. And there is some truth to that. We're not called to follow Jesus at a distance. We're called to be all up and close, all up in his chili. We need to follow Jesus with zealousness. right? But here, Peter's failure is not in the distance in which he followed, but the, he followed at all. That's where his disobedience comes into. Because even we know in the garden when Jesus is arrested, John tells us this, that when they said, hey, are you Jesus? He goes, yeah, I'm Jesus of Nazareth. And he goes, but let these men go. See, I think Jesus said that not looking at the soldiers that were trying to do the arresting. I think he was looking at the disciples, meaning you're not supposed to be here for this. This is your opportunity to flee. So yes, I'm Jesus of Nazareth, but go. Looking at the disciples, don't be here. This isn't your fight to win. This isn't your battle. This has nothing to do with you yet. And so they were supposed to flee. They were supposed to get out. And what they saw as a failure, I think, was actually a protection from God. But they didn't see it that way. So Peter, allowing his pride, allowing his curiosity, maybe even his stubbornness, it, he allowed that to take him where he was never supposed to be. He was never supposed to follow, even at a distance. He was never supposed to go to that courtyard. He was never supposed to follow Jesus there. He was supposed to flee, and then after it was all said and done, hey, I'll meet up with you in Galilee. Brings a little more truth when you hear Jesus ask him later, do you trust me, Peter? Do you love me, Peter? Because I'm looking at your life, and you're not doing what I'm asking you to do. And, and again, we see Peter fail many, many times, but here he allows his pride, his curiosity, his stubbornness to take him where he was never supposed to be. Peter was doing what he never was supposed to do. And that's the thing about sin. You know what sin brings about in your life? Greater sin and death. That even for us, we allow our curiosity, we allow our stubbornness, we allow our pride 
to take us to places that we're not even supposed to be. I shouldn't be here right now. Have you ever said those words to yourself? Knowing that you're in the thick of it, I shouldn't even be here. This is not what the Lord has for me. This is not something that I should have to experience. This is something that God never wanted for me. Sometimes the greatest defense that we have in attacking sin in our life is to flee from it. That's what Paul says, especially about sexual immorality. Flee from it. Because the only thing that sin's gonna bring about is greater sin. But a lot of times we think that we're stronger Christians than what we really are. We see ourselves a little bit greater than what we really are. We talked about that. And we'll, we'll see that sin or we'll see a temptation and be like, you know, I could, I, could, I could walk into that a little bit. I won't go that deep like other people have because, you know, like me, me and Jesus are like that. I'm a strong Christian. I can flirt with this sin just a little bit, but I know enough to be able to turn myself around and get out of that. Pride comes before the fall, and just give it time and every time. That we're not called to flirt with sin. We're not called to test it out and see what it's like. We're called to flee from it. And that's what's hard. Because sometimes it's not even us that we chose to do it. And I have an older brother. He's two years older than me. And there'd be times in our lives that things would go down, let it be, uh, uh, you know, a little schoolyard fight or something like that. My brother would look at me and said, hey, go home. You don't need to be here for this. And he would, him and his friends would take care of that. I was really good with the mouth and starting the fight, and I allowed him and his friends to end it. It was a great setup. I loved it. And then as we got older, there was other things that my brother started to experiment with and try to get into and obviously him and his friends, and I would see and be witnesses of it, and he would always tell me, don't do this. You don't want this a part of your life. You don't need to be here. And my brother was a great big brother in the sense of, do as I say, not as I do, which kind of made it difficult, because again, big brother is somebody you look up to, and sometimes you don't even have an opportunity to flee from sin but it exposes to you. I tell my students when I was a youth pastor, specifically within sexual immorality, that there are certain things that God doesn't want us to experience. Even in the midst of our brokenness and our chaos, in the midst of having a sin nature in us that we're constantly fighting and battling, there are certain things that God doesn't want us to experience, doesn't want us to know about it, wants us just to flee from it. And I tell my students, there are certain things like pornography, sexual immorality, fornication. You don't want to awaken that dragon. You don't want to awaken that dragon because he'll never go back to sleep and he's really, really hard to kill. There's a reason I have an accountability software on every device that I own. There's a reason I ask my wife to lock down our Wi-Fi. Not that I have a current struggle, but that dragon's still awake. Yes, I'm a pastor and a man with a whole lot of brokenness. And if I don't put good accountability in my life, if I don't have people that I can be open and honest with, board members, get every report of anything that I search on, a, on any device that I have, and if anything's fishy, they can call for my job because holiness matters. And if I'm prone just to be on my own and be isolated without anybody in my life, 
I don't want to end up where I was never supposed to be ever again. But that's what's hard. Because that dragon's awake and you got to fight him and you'll never get him back to sleep. There are certain things in our lives that God never intended for us to experience or to know about. A lot of kids, especially when they grow up in Christian homes, you know, they're like, I don't even have a testimony. I need to go live it up a little bit and get a testimony. You already have the greatest testimony ever. That you were never exposed, that you never engaged in some of that. That is, I would love to have that kind of story. But instead, I'm fighting dragons. Thankfully, his word, his spirit, his grace is sufficient. But it's not without a lot of battles. One of the most humbling things is to admit that kind of struggle with your wife. That I'm never gonna let up. And I'm never gonna quit having people in my life asking me hard questions. How are you doing? How is your walk? How is this going? I'm always gonna have that kind of accountability. Why? Because holiness matters and having accountability having people in my life that know my greatest weaknesses help guard where I might leave myself open to be attacked. And so Peter, even here, he didn't need the courage to keep from denying Jesus. He needed obedience to walk away from it. I wish when I was that fourth grader, as how young I was exposed, because I had an older brother and he had access to stuff. I wish I could have walked away from that. But instead, it put on a path of brokenness and destruction that I wouldn't find uh, healing and freedom until I was a married man. And thank the Lord that old things have gone and new has come, that his grace transforms our lives. So what do you do with it? It's not even a young man or an old man. It's not even a man's issue anymore. I think it's just a human issue. What do you do with somebody that's struggling with any type of sin like that? Love them, be accountable with them, be truthful with them, walk with them through it. They could be your pastor one day. But Peter was supposed to walk away. Peter was never supposed to be there. There are certain, certain things in our lives that we are never supposed to be. If he would have never been there, that he would have never had to answer that question. If he never would have been in that courtyard with, with those servant girls and those people, he would have never had to ask or hear the question asked of him, aren't you with Jesus? And that was the protection that Jesus was trying to get him to understand. Don't be here. You're not strong enough for this. One of the greatest things that we have is to flee from our sin. But instead, Peter walks away after the rooster crows. And a lot of people look at that and we kind of think, oh, Peter, he's such a schmuck, right? I think the rooster crowing was a song of grace. Because if you look, every time he denied Jesus, he denied him, then he denied him with an oath, and then he was gonna invoke a curse on himself. And one of the other gospels tells us that when the rooster crowed and Peter realized what he did, he actually made eye contact with Jesus and Jesus looked right at him not in condemnation, but of grace. Peter, get out of here. You're not supposed to be here. You're not supposed to be here. You're not supposed to see what you're seeing. You're not supposed to hear what you're hearing. That rooster is the Holy Spirit convicting in your life to call you to flee from it. And so we all need 
that rooster crowing in our life. We all need the Holy Spirit convicting us, but are we listening for him? Are we looking for he's calling us to flee from where we were never supposed to be? And then Peter walks away, went out, weeping bitterly. Some of you might have said this. I have said this multiple times. I always find myself in the wrong place at the wrong time. I've said that more times than I'd like to admit. I'm waiting for a few of those, like, I want to find myself in the right place at the right time, right? Like I'm driving down the highway and a money truck's in front of me and just opens up and it's all coming out and they didn't even count it, so they don't know what they're missing. Like where's a right time at the right place, right? Where, you know, you order a 10-piece nugget but you get 11, that's a good day, right? Like where can I find myself in that? No, I'm the guy that gets like nine, like man, and that one nugget, that changes your life. Like, that just sets you up for a bad day. But I find myself a lot in the wrong place at the wrong time. At least I did. The problem is, is you don't find yourself there. You don't all of a sudden just wake up and it's like, I'm in the wrong place at the wrong time. You walked yourself directly into it. Your choices make you and you make your choices. So you don't just find yourself there. Now, you might not understand the fullness of the consequences of it, testimony to that. But I'm absolutely culpable and guilty of the decisions that I've made, that I can't stand before anyone else or Jesus and say, I didn't do that. I didn't make that decision. That, no. In my sin and brokenness, I have made every one of those decisions. I intentionally walked myself there. And just like Peter, we lead ourselves into sin because of our pride because of our curiosity. Ooh, I wonder what that's like. But there's something. And so you can walk away from sin in one of two ways. Number one, you can walk away from sin in obedience. Sin is gonna tempt us, try to draw us away from following Jesus. And scripture is clear. He has given us the ability to endure temptation, that there's no temptation that overtakes us that is not common to man, but he has provided a way of escape, that every temptation, every sin that we encounter, there is a way of escape away from it. The question is, do we have enough faith and trust in God and obedience to walk away from it? Do we fully trust that God has our best interest at heart, that his design, his will is the best for our lives? Instead of looking at the world and trying to redefine sin, do we just let God say, hey, this is what sin is, this is what sin is not, this is how we should be walking, this is how we should not be walking? Do we trust him? Even though it might challenge how we feel, how we have been raised, it might challenge against what the culture says is right, wrong, good, bad, ugly, are we gonna trust Jesus? Are we gonna take our next step either in obedience, away from it, or are we gonna take our next step in disobedience, like Peter? Peter eventually walked away from that sin, being in the place that he was not supposed to be, but he walked away in guilt, he walked away in shame. Now don't hear me, like, I love when people walk away from sin, have a life of alcoholism, and now they're sober, walk away from drug use, and now they're sober, walk away from pornography, and now they're living a life of freedom, like, I love that. But again, there are certain things that God never wanted for us. That we're walking away in guilt and shame because we failed in walking away in obedience. 
trusting that God has the best plan for our life. And are we going to understand it all? No, if you did, then it's not faith. It's not trust if we know the whole plan. But do we know enough that if God says, hey, don't do that, we're not going to do it? Or do we have enough faith that when God says, hey, this is what I want to see in your life, will we pursue those things in our life? That's where faith comes in and obedience. And it's not just an intellectual, okay, I I affirm everything that God says here, but my life is completely different. No, this shapes the manner in which we live our lives, and it should. And so we can walk away from sin in either obedience or disobedience. Thankfully, that we have the Holy Spirit to lead and to guide our lives. And the moments that we do step out of line, his grace is sufficient even in our weaknesses, and he's continually calling us back to walk with him. And so in a group this size this morning, even if there's three of us, there's still enough. I'm not naive enough to think that there's a few of you here that you're finding yourself in a situation you're not even supposed to be in. And the tug and the pull on your heart this morning is God saying, I have a different and a better plan for you. Will you trust me with it? And it's gonna be hard to walk away. And it's gonna be hard to walk away from the things, from the people, to your normal way of life. That is gonna be very different and difficult. But trust him. I promise you that any one of us, as we stand before Jesus, and we have a life that we've lived in complete surrender and submission to him, none of us are gonna stand there and look at him and think, wasn't worth it. Because there's a lot of things that would try to promise us fulfillment and purpose and acceptance in our world, and they're not there. That's only found in the completed work of Jesus Christ. And so I encourage you, allow him to lead and guide your life. Is your life gonna look different? Oh, I hope so. Oh, I hope so. But he's worthy and he's worth it. Will you simply respond to Jesus? Let's pray. Father, we love you, we trust you, we just thank you for this morning. Thank you for an opportunity to dig deep into your word. Give us that faith, Lord knowing that there are so many things in our life that you have not called us to walk in. Give us the strength that we would walk away from that and walk in faith and trust in your plan, your design for our lives. Lord, I pray that we would continue to be useful vessels in your hands. We ask that you'd pour out your Holy Spirit yet again on us, that we'd surrender and submit our lives to you, allow you to lead and guide us, that we would be your hands, your feet, we'd be your heart to this world. Lord, call us to be a voice of hope. We lift up Adventure Week with all everybody serving and the staff leading, but more than anything, we lift up amazing families in our community. That they would come to know you or they would come to know you in a more deeper, real way. That they would find hope, they would find freedom, they would find fulfillment in their relationship with you. But Lord, we surrender it to you. Let it be all done for your glory. We pray this in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen.